And we can only give thanks with all of our hearts for that. So, we can't take God lightly. You know, when we think about these last days in which we're living in, I I truly believe it is time for us in the church to be serious about who God is. Because we have so many things going on in this world. We see it on the news each and every day. The Middle East is a tremendous focus in the news. Uh, It seems that people ought to awaken to that fact that uh, the prophecies that were given were pointing directly to that time and to that place and to that uh, uh, region because that's where history uh, through all of the Bible has gotten our attention, attention to focus upon. And that's what we need to be doing, is focusing upon what God is preparing to do. As Christians, we can't just sit back and and just say, well, whatever happens, happens. We have God's word. We know what's going to happen. We know that his, his word is true. So many prophecies have come to pass. So many things are happening. So much is happening so quickly that if we don't get into prayer, if we don't get into in, into serious relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we... You know, we don't we don't want him to come and fly through, you know, and and we miss anything, you know. We can't sit back anymore. We've got to be serious about the Lord. When I say this, I say this because we need to tell people that Jesus is coming. It's not just another one of those things that you do because, you know, it's time for the sandwich board. You know, the end is near. The end is near, and and, and it's it's about getting serious with the Lord. He is coming. We've got a lot of people that don't need that, that don't know the Lord. And then on top of that, we, we we're supposed to know the Lord, but we ourselves are not focused upon the Lord, and we're going through all kinds of struggles and trials in the church, and in our homes, and in our families. And I say, man, let's wake up. Let's wake up. The Lord is coming. Jesus said, "I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. You better be ready." It's not a time to be messing around with God. And we're, we're talking about, we're not talking about getting you all out there and changing everybody not to be clones, you know, we've got to look alike and sound alike. No, we're all individuals that God has created and, you know, man, we're just excited to know that we've, we've been saved by the love of Christ. But, hey, others haven't. Others haven't. And are we truly ready? Are we truly ready? So, Isaiah 9. Last week we touched briefly upon verses 6 and 7. I want to look a lot closer now at verse 6 and a little bit of verse 7. I hope we can see a lot of verse 7. But a whole lot of verse 6 is what I want you to see tonight. For indeed it is a great prophecy that came to pass. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Father, we pray that you will grant us wisdom and understanding to this passage and to these words, to these names that are given unto our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand these things, Lord, as we come to grips with these names and how they minister to our hearts, how they encourage us and challenge us to know you and to know you better and to know Jesus better. That is truly our desire tonight. Cleanse us, Lord, purify our hearts, our minds, and our consciences that we might receive everything that you have for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. You're back in school. This is a test. What is that from? <laughs> so begins the classic tome of Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. The French Revolution had brought the worst of times and the best of times to both France and England. Dickens' words were truly descriptive of the mood of the world. But these words could also have been spoken about our time. Because in many ways, we in America are experiencing the best of times the world has ever known. At the same time, and in other ways, these are the worst of times. The same was true in the time prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. There was both despair and hope residing in the hearts of the people of Israel. Sometimes both emotional extremes made their home in the hearts of the people at the very same time. It was the worst of times. The Romans were occupying Israel. Cruel soldiers walked the streets and the taxes of Rome kept the people in poverty. A mood of despair had settled among the many of the people for not many years before they had experienced victory over their enemies, the Syrians, which they celebrated to this day or celebrate to this day in the holiday called Hanukkah. But once again they were subservient to a foreign power. When the Romans came to power, the Jewish rulers first tried to compromise. 
And when that didn't work, they tried to assassinate Herod the Great, ruler of what was known as Palestine, only to have their revolt crushed by Rome. When Herod killed the last leader of the Maccabees, Hyrcanus II, deep despair came upon all the people of Israel. But it was also the best of times in some ways. The Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, pervaded that part of the world, and, and there was a measure of political stability. Roman law brought order. Progress and commerce came to Israel with the building of the Roman roads. Best of all, even though it was a political maneuver, Herod had rebuilt the temple for the Jews. But better still was the promise of the prophets that God would send Messiah into the world. Holy longings filled their hearts and they clung to the words of Isaiah the prophet, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. Or even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So they had this particular longing, but you have to ask the question, would they recognize the Messiah when he appeared? Would they recognize this child who was born, this son who was given, born in Bethlehem as the prophet Micah had predicted? And when we consider the time that the prophecy was given, go back a few hundred years before then, we might say that it was only the worst of times. What we've been studying in Isaiah chapters 8, 7 and 8. The Assyrians were ready to pounce on all of Israel and Judah. The people were looking for answers from all the wrong places and people. And an ominous darkness was covering the land. If there were any best of times, it would have to be the hope of light and of blessing. The future blessing of the favored nation Israel when they shall be restored to their land. Something we saw in the first two verses last week of, verse, of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. And so in our previous study we focused on both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah. A child is born, a son is given. The child would be a man, but more than a man. What he was and is will always be what we needed and, and need still. Emmanuel, from chapter 7, the prophecy, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Being fully man, He stood in the place of fallen, sinful man as the substitute for the punishment that man deserves. Being fully God, His sacrifice would be sufficient. But what we want to look more closely at tonight are the names given to the Savior in this prophecy. These names are not to be seen as literal names given to Messiah. Just as we remember the name given Emmanuel, meaning God with us, we know that that's describing who Jesus is and what He came to do, to be among His people. But in effect, these names reflect the aspects of His character and describe who He is and what He has come to do. Now, in Semitic thought, a name does not just identify or distinguish a person. It expresses the very nature of His being. And it brings to mind a question. It's a question that we have to ask today about God and about Jesus. And the question is, why is it that the greater part of men are satisfied with His mere name and don't observe His power and His energy, though they should be chiefly regarded? The power of God, the strength of God, the wisdom of God, the might of God. We know His name, or at least we people think they know His name, or they know what it means, and they just consider Him to be merely a name. But as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in God, in one God, in three persons, we have to consider how great that name is or how great those names are that deal with His character. More than just consider a name. People today have lost understanding of what a name means. When we name kids today, I'm not, you know... <laughs> trying to get on anybody if you want to name your kids, you know, something weird. I mean, I, you know, but I mean, but, but you know, when, when names were given, they were given with great thought. Sometimes names were given because it was a family name. And they wanted to keep that family name going. Other times, you know, when you look back at Scripture, names were given. And some of these names really reflected the character. But these names were prayed about. And, and, and God would honestly give these names, you know. And they meant something. They really mean something here in Scripture about God and about Messiah. And while there is much to say about the name of Yeshua alone, which is of course the name of Jesus, notwithstanding the titles of Christ, which is of course Messiah and Lord, which is His main title, the essence of Messiah is much too glorious to be captured in one word. And so the name given in Isaiah's prophecy becomes five descriptive titles. Five descriptive titles. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me say that oftentimes we, we read the first two, Wonderful Counselor is one. And as I'll mention in just a moment, I don't often separate those names. But it's good to separate them today and, and get an understanding of what it means for Him to be wonderful and to be Counselor. 
though he is indeed a wonderful counselor. But please understand and bear with me as we look at the word wonderful. It isn't often that I do separate the first two names from each other, wonderful counselor, since they fit so well together. But if we do separate them, we find in that first word a suggestion, a suggestion of the mystery of his sonship, which no man can truly comprehend. As Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, He says, All things have been delivered to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. To whomever the Son wills to reveal, we can understand. We can comprehend. But you see, we can't fully comprehend that relationship between father and son. Why this wonderful relationship? I think of what is said in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13, where John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Notice another couple of names given to Jesus. Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were, were many crowns. And notice this. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He had a name that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name, notice, is called the Word of God. How many names can we know? The Messiah Jesus Christ as. Under this name wonderful. He appeared. To the parents of Solomon. As the angel of the Lord. Under the name wonderful. Look if you will. At Judges chapter 13. Verses 17 and 18. The angel of the Lord had originally appeared to to, uh, Samson's. I should say Samson. I meant to say Samson. Samson's mother. And Manoah is Samson's father. And it says, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? It's interesting when you read this story in the book of Judges that Manoah lays out an offering in accordance to the will of this angel. And as the offering goes up and the, and the flames go up, <laughs> the angel goes up with these flames and man, these people are just like, whoa. And they're saying, we're going to die. You know who this was. You know who this was. We've seen God. Yet they would be comforted in knowing that that was an acceptance of that sacrifice. And truly in whatever appearance he showed himself, it was, it was okay for them because he, he accepted that sacrifice. Wonderful God. It was miraculous. 
And so here it indicates that he transcends by far the limits of human understanding and the boundaries of ordinary human existence. And in reality, only the Father understands this mystery of godliness. Only the Father understands it, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And while it is beyond our human comprehension, nevertheless we find our hearts crying out again, isn't He wonderful? Is He not a wonderful God? As we read the divinely inspired records of Christ's lowly birth, of His sinless life, of His explicit death and His glorious resurrection, isn't He wonderful? You see, if we read it correctly, what we should be saying is, isn't He full of wonder? Isn't He just full of majesty? Isn't He marvelous? I mean, it, it, it marvels, you know, us. The things that God does. The things that God is. The thing that God has become for us. He took upon Himself flesh to die for us. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? It is full of wonder that God Himself would lower Himself as He did in Jesus He stands supreme above all the sons of men, his heart touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Listen, we have a God that knows what our hearts are going through. We have a God that knows the struggles that we're feeling and the struggles that we're dealing with. We have a God that knows what they are and He wants us to trust Him to get us through those times of sorrow, those times of pain, those times of sinfulness, those times that, that we need to just surrender who we are and say, God, forgive us, cleanse us, make us what You want us to be because You're a wonderful God. I trust You in this thing. I sometimes believe we fall so short of what God wants to show us of Himself because we don't see Him as a God of wonder. We want a little bit of God, but we want a little bit of an answer in the world. We want a little bit of an answer here and there in this book and that place, this magazine or this newspaper or this TV program or whatever. We need God and God alone because He's wonderful. He alone is wonderful. His grace manifested in thousands, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of ways. The word itself in the Hebrew refers, the word wonderful, refers to being marvelous and surpassing, extraordinary as it were, to be beyond one's power in doing hard and difficult things. Why does, uh, I mean, I should say, who doesn't? Who doesn't face difficult things in their lives? Who does not face difficult things in their lives? Sometimes we think that the rich person, oh, listen, the rich person has no problems whatsoever. Oh, yeah, they have a lot of problems. One problem is they don't want to, they don't want to get poor, so they've got to think about how they can get richer. Or they have other problems. How do you keep what you got? 
How can you find happiness if this is all I've got? I mean, I'm looking for happiness. I thought I would have happiness if I had more, if I had money, but now I've got money, I just want more. But I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. Who doesn't face difficult things in their lives? We're more in tune to what the poor feel. In the very, in the very fact that we realize that, you know, every day the poor hope to have something if anything, to stay alive, to keep going. And yet there is one who is wonderful, able to do impossible things because there is nothing too difficult for him. There's nothing too difficult for this wonderful God. Jeremiah 32 verse 17 says, Oh Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. We need to start singing that chorus again. We sang it for years and years. Simply, you know, in the King James English, but we sang it. There's nothing too hard for God. He is a wonderful God. He is a wonderful Messiah. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He is a wonderful Lord. And he's also counselor. And certainly he is a wonderful counselor. The word in the Hebrew, ya'atz, literally means to advise, consult, give counsel, purpose, devise, and plan. In contrast, keep in mind that the people, as we were studying in the book of Isaiah chapter 8, the people got into trouble in the first place because they were looking for advice from people who contacted the dead instead of contacting their God. Unlike dead people, God is a great counselor and He never gives bad advice. I can assure you that God never gives bad advice. Just read the Scriptures from cover to cover. Read the Scriptures from page to page, from chapter to chapter, from verse to verse. When has God ever given bad advice? Now, some people might say, well, you didn't give me the advice I wanted. Well, the problem is not that His advice was bad, it's just that your thinking is bad and your desires are, are you know, just sinful. And you need to get in line with what God wants. Because He's a good counselor. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. How can we not consider his being a great counselor without looking at this? Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. If God has anything in mind for us, it is the health of our body and of our spirit and of our whole person, of who we all are. That's what He cares about. And then think of this. Think of the very fact that Jesus is the one fit to guide our lives and should be the Christian's immediate resource as a counselor. Jesus, the counselor. Do we as pastors counsel in the ministry? Sure, we do. What is our counsel? We point them to Jesus. Why? Because he's the great counselor. It is our hope and prayer that we will be filled with God's Spirit as well as filled with God's Word 
pointing you to the right places in the scripture so that, hey, when you come in and say, here, this is my problem. Okay, well, go to this page. Go to this scripture. Go here because this, look, it's telling you. It's speaking right to you. If that's not what you want to hear, then, you know, you can go to worldly counselors and give you all kinds of stuff. Like that one particular counselor I've mentioned in the past, you know, the people were going to this person because they said, well, you know, we had to go to a counselor. We had, you know, because of one thing or another, we had to have somebody sign stuff. And so we went to this counselor and the counselor is sitting there and uh, supposedly was a Christian counselor and he's sitting there smoking, you know, and, and, and then he's saying, well, let me tell you something. You know, I've gone through two divorces myself. Now, some might chalk that up to experience. But folks, isn't God's counsel better? If we'll just listen and then pray and then wait on the Lord and then determine and decide that we will change, whether anyone else does, we will change so that we can be right with God. Because, you know, realize this, we need to change. We always want everybody else to change. We're always saying, hey, everybody else is wrong. I'm the, one, I'm the only one marching in the right you know, step. No, it's not the way it works. Jesus is the only one that marches in step. He's the only one in the eyes of God the Father that marches in step to the Father. And it's for us to want to march with Him in step with the Lord. So Jesus can help you with your problems. He may use the presence and the words of another Christian to do it, but Jesus still is our counselor. And how we need Jesus as our counselor. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says, because he brings up a good point here. He says, it was by a counselor, listen carefully, it was by a counselor that this world was ruined. Did not Satan mask himself in the serpent and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she should take unto herself of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil in the hope that thereby she should be as God? Was it not that evil counsel which provoked our mother to rebel against her maker? And did it not as the effect of sin, and, and did it not as the effect of sin bring death into this world with all of its train of woe? Ah, beloved, it was meet that the world should have a counselor to restore it, if it had a counselor to destroy it. The world was destroyed by a bad counselor, and it takes the great counselor, the wonderful counselor, to restore it. Jesus is our wonderful Counselor. The Messiah is called Counselor because He comes to us as the Revealer of the Father's will. He comes to us as the Revealer of the Father's will. This is what is implied in His divine title, the Word or the Logos in the Greek. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. If you jump down to verse 14 of the same chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. The Word made flesh. The Logos, the revealer of the Father's will, made flesh. It is by the Word that God makes known His mind. And the Lord Jesus, who was with the Father from the very beginning, that is, when everything that ever had a beginning began, came into this scene to make God known 
And so in Him the Father has spoken out all that is in His heart. In Jesus Christ, He has spoken all that is in His heart. That makes Him even more wonderful, doesn't it? Think of Psalm 16, verse 11. David says to God, You will show me the path of life. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, when God shows us the path, when He shows us the great counsel that we need, man, it only leads to joy, and it leads to pleasures forevermore. In whatever circumstance we're dealing with, in whatever thing we're dealing with, in whatever thing we're needing God's counsel in, guess what? It leads to joy if we'll follow the path of life. It leads to pleasures forevermore if we follow the path of life. As the eternal word, he is the revealer of the mind and the heart of God, having come to earth not only to show us the way of the Father, but also to empower us that we may walk in a manner well-pleasing to the one who has redeemed us. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this beautiful prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled, notice, with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, increasing in the knowledge of God never stops and it never comes to a fulfillment immediately as if to say, I've got all the knowledge of God. Now I'll walk pleasing of Him and I don't have to know anymore. No, no. You walk pleasing, fully pleasing Him, but you know what? You're walking worthy of Him and you're increasing in the knowledge of God. Why? Because we will in this life never have all the knowledge that we can ever get of God. As long as God gives you life, as long as God gives you breath, you're going to learn more about God. And if He taught you something tonight, He'll teach you something more tomorrow. Until the day of Jesus Christ, when we will see Him for who He is, when we will see Him in all of His glory. And you know what? Even in eternity, we're going to still learn more and more about God. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21... It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd, or that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete or perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you what is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The wisdom and will and counsel of Almighty God, that we might always be pleasing to him. He's the great counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. But that, not only that, but he's the mighty God. He's the mighty God. The Messiah is mighty God. What is that saying? It's saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is not only the Son of God, but He is God, the Son. The Messiah is mighty God, the God of all creation and glory, the Lord who reigns in heaven, the one worthy of our worship, the one worthy of our praise. I don't think there can be a more straightforward, uncomplicated, clear-cut <laughs> declaration of the deity of the Messiah. 
Simply, He is mighty God. And yet, some groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses try to make a distinction between, listen to this, between mighty God and almighty God. Jesus is just mighty God. But Jehovah is almighty God. There's no truth to that, folks. Please understand this. Please understand this. Scripturally, there is no distinction because both titles are used of Jesus and Yahweh specifically. Yahweh being, of course, the name of God in Hebrew. Yahweh or uh, Lord God or Elohim God, you know, all the names. I don't know, you know, but God, okay? Consider this. Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. John says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. Notice, the next voice is the voice of Jesus. And He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is Jesus speaking. There is no doubt that this is Jesus speaking, and even Jehovah's Witnesses have to agree, even from their Bibles, that this is Jesus that is speaking. He is Almighty. But even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, or 21, it says the prophet here uses the exact same phrase to refer to Yahweh. Speaking of the phrase that is used in Isaiah chapter 9, for the Messiah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. I'm reading verse 20 to, to, to let you know who we're talking about. We're talking about the Holy One of Israel who is God. To them, Almighty God. And yet it says in verse 21, the remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the Mighty God. Speaking of God Himself. So this is not an argument to say, well, there's a mighty God and there's almighty God. Because they want their theology to be right, they, get, they mess up the Scriptures. And they twist the Scriptures to make it sound and to see what they want it to be. But folks, it's very clear. Mashiach, Yeshua, Mashiach is mighty God. And therefore, this is a clear statement of absolute deity. And consider that if Christ had not been God, it would have been unlawful to glory in Him. For it is written in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. And so if we glory in the Mashiach, if we glory in Messiah, it's okay because He's mighty God. And with all that in mind, the designation Mighty God refers to the heroic power that, together with counsel, constitutes the two fundamental qualities of a king. And in this case, the king. Power and counsel. Power and counsel. Power uninformed by wise counsel and counsel powerless to act are both unfruitful. But a king with power and counsel is most fruitful. And so the words mighty God refer, are referring to the divine nature of the Messiah. They cannot be separated from each other. 
and clearly point to Jesus as the Apostle Paul puts it in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. Listen what he says about Jesus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for, listen, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Speaking of that one person, those designations pointing to Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. Great God, same idea, mighty God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. Either way you cut it, Mashiach is mighty God. And then John in his last letter. First John, well, it's not his last letter, but in his last few epistles, I should say. First John chapter 5. It was really Revelation is the last letter. First John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically speaking, this is going to point to Him. Because He's speaking of Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God pointing to Jesus Christ. And, He says eternal life is there eternal life apart from Jesus Christ not from the scriptures can we get that to say that there is there is only eternal life in Jesus Christ and then we come to a designation that is confusing to some everlasting father everlasting father A better rendering for this title would be the Father of Eternity or the Father of the Coming Age, which of course will be the Eternal Age. This is in the sense of one who possesses eternity. The Everlasting Father would be the one who possesses eternity. The title with reference to Father gets many confused because they would ask the question, how could Jesus be the Father when we know Him as the Son? Well, aside from the fact that it's not hard for a person to be both a father and a son, how many of you are both a father and a son? Oh, there you go. There you go. (laughs) Aside from the fact that it's not hard for a person to be both a father and a son, the focus really needs to be on his relation to his people. This king, for Messiah is to be king, as we'll learn about him being on the throne of David, this king cares for them with loving, with loving goodness as a father does his children. It points to his concern for the helpless. 
Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. He is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. But there it is, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy habitation. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. Isaiah 63, verse 16. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are, and all we are the work of your hand. Father. Everlasting Father. But Jesus, in one sense, is a Father to us, though He is also our elder brother, as we've become adopted by God. We are His adopted sons and daughters, as we cry, Abba, Father. But Jesus, in essence, because of what He did for us on the cross, because of what He did in giving Himself into this suffering and sacrifice. How many have been born again of the Spirit of God? Born again, He fathering us in that particular respect. But He is everlasting Father. He's a father who cares. He's a father who cares about his people. Yet there is a father and he is the son. And then there's the prince of peace. Because in the prince of peace, all of these names culminate right here. Prince of peace. In this name, the prophet returns to the depiction of the peace that dawns for Israel, as we see in verse 4 of this same chapter of Isaiah. A description that continues in a moment as we shall see. In the meantime, Shalom is not to be thought of merely as the end of or termination of strife. That certainly is one definition of peace, the end or the termination of strife. But shalom isn't to be just thought of that as merely the end, since it sums up in addition to peace in that sense. It sums up all of salvation. It sums up blessing. And it sums up happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you look at the Beatitudes in in Matthew chapter 5, and you begin to realize, once you look at the whole picture there, that happiness is in fact the peace that comes in surrendering ourselves to God, to His Lordship in our lives. 
to his kingship in our lives. So in other words, it refers to wholeness, it refers to completeness, and it refers to soundness. But, but we must never lose sight of the fact that he is the one who makes peace, especially between God and man. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly this particular verse is really pointing to the very fact that, that we were at war with God. Before we were justified by faith, we were at war with God. There was this, 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 cosmic, this cosmic turmoil, this cosmic war that we were fighting against the God who created us. As sinners, that's what we did. As sinners, that, that's what happened after the fall. And everyone was tainted with all of this sin. Man was at war with God. But, you know, when, when there is a victor in, in war, peace has come. And it says that we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We're no longer at war, in other words. The hostilities are over. The fighting is over. On the personal level, peace means fulfillment. It means to die in peace. In essence, to die in peace is to have a life or have lived a fulfilled life. To have achieved all God planned as in the life of Abraham. This was long before Abraham died, but in Genesis 15, verse 15, it says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. God is telling Abram this before he even had his name changed to Abraham. So this was still a long way before he dies. God knows him and he says, You shall go to your fathers in peace. Hey, you will be fulfilled. Peace is well-being and freedom from anxiety. In relationships, it is goodwill and harmony. It is the opposite of war. Towards God, it is the full realization of His favor. Every meeting we have. I quote to you Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you shalom, give you wholeness, give you completeness, give you soundness, give you peace. And there is a peace in what God has done for us when we realize in Isaiah 53 verse 5, that great passage dealing with the sufferings of Messiah, the sufferings of that Sacrifice, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And notice this phrase, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. The chastisement for our peace, the, the punishment, the, the discipline for our peace was not on us. It was upon him. And he, by his stripes we are healed. And so when Jesus returns, He will set up His kingdom on earth and there will be no more war. But this also refers to that peace with God that we can experience right now in our hearts. Right now. Now I'm just going to read verse 7 to you. and We'll begin here next time and finish the chapter. But in verse 7 it says, Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom... To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. And so here the, the, the very throne of, of Christ, the very throne of Messiah will be filled by Him forever. And He has right to the throne because He is both 
uh, rightful heir on his father Joseph's side and his mother Mary's side, all connected to the house of David. We'll talk a little bit more about this next time. But it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord. The desire of God, the deep desire of God for his people will perform this. I want to close with this thought that Jesus, Jesus can be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace for everyone right now. Jesus can be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace for everyone right now. You see, one day these offices will be imposed upon the world. The government shall be upon his shoulder. But for now, they are real for those who receive Jesus and submit to him. He can be wonderful for you. The world is going to see the wonderful counselor that they missed, the mighty God that they didn't believe in, the everlasting Father that they rejected, the Prince of Peace that they scoffed at. But to us, He is all of that and more. And therefore we, who believe in Jesus Christ tonight, it's not a boast, folks. It's a relief. (laughs) It's a blessing. To know that God would love us. That he would send his only begotten son. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I truly believe that we need to make a true examination of our hearts when it comes to our relationship and our fellowship to Jesus Christ. Do we believe? Do we truly believe that these scriptures are pointing to Jesus, that they were fulfilled in Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago? And that the very same Jesus who fulfilled these prophecies is going to fulfill the prophecies in which he says, I'm coming again. We have to check our hearts. Because too often we live as if Jesus isn't coming. Too often we're living our lives as if, oh, he might come maybe in 20, 30 years. Well, that was 20, 30 years ago, folks, for some. And if we're not waking up to the warnings now, we're not waking up at all. It's time to wake up. It's time to do what Jesus said to his disciples that we saw back on Sunday. Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Pray. I want to close with one verse of scripture before we stand and, and, and dismiss tonight. I have to share this with you. 
First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. But the end of all things is at hand. That's pretty clear, but that was nearly 2,000 years ago. But it's still true. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious about Jesus coming again. Let's pray.